ultimately Jesus would find joy in the sacrifice that he made for the world so that we, in fact, could be saved. It says this, from that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter, a well-meaning disciple of Jesus, who was very pleased with all that Jesus had been doing, driving out demons, healing the sick, raising the dead, and giving them back to their widowed mothers, right? Jesus was doing some great things during his earthly ministry. So Peter, in his well-meaning state, took Jesus aside. Can you imagine this? He said, Jesus, I've got some counsel for you. Anybody ever counsel, try to counsel the Lord before? Tell him what they think is going to be best for their situation? Here's what Peter did. He took him aside and began to rebuke Jesus, saying, far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he, meaning Jesus, turned and said to Peter, one of Jesus' main men, Get behind me, Satan. Would that hurt anybody? <laughs> Peter was one of Jesus' main disciples, and he said, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me in this moment, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone, everybody say anyone, would come after me. Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And so ultimately Jesus is paving the way to the happiness that we're looking for, but it comes in a different manner than often we're looking for it. Does that make sense here? He's saying often it comes in a different manner than the manner in which the world at large is looking for it. And biblical happiness is ultimately oriented in God's kingdom and not merely building your own. Biblical happiness is ultimately rooted in God's kingdom and not merely building your own. To walk in a happy state means that you have to embrace the world as God created it and navigate it as Christ commands. So meaning when you do things God's way, you've got God's endorsement, you've got his backing, and then ultimately God's, the B word, blessing. So what is the present state of the world? What is the present state of the world at large? Well, 1 John 5.19 tells us this. That we know that we are from God. Talking to the church about the children of God. We know that we are from God, but not everybody belongs to Christ. And when you don't, that the whole world lies under the power of the evil one. I remember that being a revelation to me. I always knew it somehow to be true, but it was a revelation when I saw it on the page. Because I would always talk to people who people talked about as good people. Right? They were kind, they did a few altruistic things, they were sweet, but inwardly they were full of the flesh and hell. Anybody ever noticed that before? 
right? It's sort of like they might be sweet to you because you don't rub them the wrong way, but if they have anyone who disagrees with them, they're nasty online. And it says that the whole world without Jesus is literally subject to the evil one. And because we live in a fallen world with a majority of people, not the minority, but the majority of people living in rebellion to God, to not walk in the counsel of the wicked means you have to proactively seek righteous counsel. Do you see that? Because the majority of what you're surrounded by is not righteous counsel. You're going to have to proactively look for something different. You have to be careful of the trajectory of your life, whether it's in righteousness or wickedness. And in all things, like I said before, like the scripture says, first in everything, you walk, then you stand, and then you sit in the convictions that you've developed, whether actively or passively. And this is why the Apostle Paul, when he was writing to the nascent church, wrote this in Romans chapter 12. He said, I appeal to you. He said, I could have commanded you, but I'm appealing to you. Why? Because I'm looking out for your benefit, church. He said, I appeal to you by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. You see how that is very relevant in today's times and today's discussions? Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, which is your spiritual worship. He says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good. God wants what's good for you and acceptable and perfect. God wants you to walk in his good, acceptable, and perfect will, but it means that you're going to have to find counsel other than what's immediately available to you based on what you see in your algorithms. Make sense? Okay. Now, we've got to understand what the writer of Romans, again, Paul, is saying here. To be conformed in the scripture is a passive tense and action. It's a passive tense and action, and that matters. Because it means that if you're not resisting conformity, ultimately you will be subdued. When he says, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, what he's ultimately saying is, if you don't put your feet in the sand and walk against the tide, eventually you'll be carried downstream, not knowing where your family or blanket are. Ultimately, he's saying, listen, you've got to proactively, looking for this happiness, conform to the pattern of God and not the pattern of the world. Why? Because you begin to walk in the counsel of the wicked when you lack discerning thought, filtered through the word of God to actively distinguish between right and wrong. That's why we're continually lifting up the word of God. Why? So that it can wash us. Jesus said, you are already clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Every time you're hearing or reading the word of God, it's washing you inwardly in your thoughts, in your spirit, in your soul, which is your mind, milk, will, and emotions. It's actually washing your soul so that you can have a new reference point for happiness. You're conformed to the pattern of this world by imbibing in the idea, um, ideologies that surround you without proactively filtering and rejecting what is incongruent with the law of God. 
That's why we meditate on it day and night. You begin, secondly, though, to stand in the way of sinners when you make it a habit to practice what they are doing. That's why John Wesley said, ultimately, what one generation tolerates, the next generation will embrace. Because they start by walking in the counsel of the wicked, and then they start to what? I mean, l listening to the counsel of the wicked, then they start to walk in it, right? And then ultimately, they begin to stand. And you begin to sit in the seat of a scoffer, judging, mocking, and deriding the things of God when you've stopped fighting the evil one and take the easier road to conformity. That's the progression. And it literally is antithetical to a blessed life. So if you want the hashtag blessed life, <laughs> you've got to walk differently than this. You can't just walk in the counsel of the wicked. You go, sorry, I keep forgetting. I keep messing it up. You can't just listen to the counsel of the wicked, walk in the way of sinners, or stand in the seat, or sit in the seat of scoffers. If you've ever been in a church community before and wondered why some people culturally started in it, but now if you look at their lives, they're sort of just, you're like, are they the Antichrist? <laughs> Has anyone ever had that friend like that before? <laughs> they're like, wait, did they, did they just literally jump off the deep end? <laughs> right? <laughs> why did they start this way and end up this way? Why did they start here having a professional, at least appreciation and acceptance of God, and ultimately ended up one of the church's biggest opponents. It's this progression. Starting first in the counsel of the wicked, then walking in the way of sinners, then sitting in the seat of scoffers. Do you see that? And it's antithetical to the life that they're actually looking for. This is why a man named John Lennox He's a great apologist. If you, has anyone read any John Lennox books before? Okay, that's fine. I recommend him to you. Please look him up. Okay? He, said, he wrote a book called Against the Flow, The Inspiration of Daniel in the Age of Relativism. And he said the story of Daniel, meaning Daniel and the lion's den, remember Sunday school? Okay. So the story of Daniel and his friends is a clearing call to our generation to be courageous, not to lose our nerve and allow the expression of our faith to be diluted and squeezed out of the public space and thus rendered spineless and ineffective. Their story will also tell us that this objective is not likely to be achieved without cost. And the truth of the matter is, is that we treat God as if he's infringing upon our rights when he gives us commands that cut against our wills. It's almost like, God, you've come into a space you're not invited. But God says, this is my world, and you are my tenants. I want to bless you while you're here. I want to lead you to what's good, but you've got to do things my way according to my design. And ultimately, it'll lead to your happiness. God sets the rules and orders creation with inputs and consequences according to his grand design for good. That was ultimately what Genesis 1 was talking about. When things work according to that design, they are blessed and human flourishing as a result as we inhabit the world. That's what basically we've discovered even in the scientific method, right? Do we have any scientists in here? How many people know that science and faith are not contradictory, but they are compatible? 
and they complement one another because it's God's world. And he said that he said it's the glory of God to conceal a matter while it's the glory of kings and queens to search a matter out and understand the order in which God's designed the world to function for good. That's why John Lennox also said men became scientific because they expected law in nature. Why are we reflecting on the law of God continually? Because we expect law in nature. And they expect law in nature because they believed in a lawgiver. It was this conviction that led Francis Bacon, regarded by many as the father of modern science, to teach that God has provided us with two books, the book of nature and the book of the Bible. And both give us revelation, not only to who God is, nature giving general revelation, and the scripture giving special revelation that we might know him clearly. But both ultimately testify to the happiness that people are looking for when we order our lives according to God's design. It all goes back to his design. When we disobey God's commands, things deteriorate, break down, and ultimately die, whether it's your body, relationships, or mental well-being. And death ultimately is always, always, everybody say always, always, always the consequence of sin. How many people can say amen to that? Death is always the consequence of sin, and happiness cannot dwell there. Yet happiness ultimately abides in holiness. Happiness abides in holiness when we're set apart to God and doing things according to God's design and ultimately for God's purposes. Remember, holiness is not just dressing a certain way, though we encourage everyone in this heat to dress modestly. We ultimately say that holiness is inward, producing outward activity and actions, right? And holiness is a prerequisite to true happiness because you enter into the backing of God. We've got to define, though, what a good and holy life looks like. A lot of times you hear that word holiness, and it's like, okay, I hear it, I want it, I agree with it, but what does it look like? Anybody ever been there before? I agree with it. What does it look like, though? Well, I like G.K. Chesterton, who was a comic and <laughs> tongue-in-cheek sort of said this. He said, the word good has many meanings. For example, if a man were to shoot his grandmother at a range of 500 yards, I should call him a good shot, but not necessarily a good man. And we've got to use the word good in an appropriate manner, in a God manner. Jesus came to restore and give life that was good. But the question is, was Jesus concerned with righteousness, meaning adherence to the law of God, or simply love and grace? Was he concerned with an adherence to the law of God on which we should be meditating day and night, or simply with love and grace? Right? Because that's the pendulum swing that you hear about all the time, right? Jesus is not necessarily concerned with what I do because he'll always forgive me. Jesus is not necessarily concerned with the way the world's going because ultimately he wants to give grace, right? But is that true? Well, according to Matthew 5, 17 through 20, Jesus, again, speaking in the Sermon on the Mount, clarified what he came to do. He said, do not think I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. Don't think that I've come to get rid of them, is what he was saying. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Isn't that good news? So that means that the God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. 
They are not different people. They are not different stories. It is a continuation of the same God who never changes, who's ultimately giving commands to be obeyed for our good. Jesus said, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away. And last time I looked, they're still here. Until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and of the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Those are the words of Jesus. So ultimately, we know that our righteousness comes from him, right? What he did for us on the cross, his perfect record before God, he gives to us in that exchange. As we repent of our sins, turn away from that which is lawless, and turn to him and ask for his forgiveness at the cross, he comes to wash us clean and say, you're righteous in his sight. Good news, right? But then that faith produces righteous living. Or at least it should. Jesus was ultimately concerned with both. And in fact, it was Christ's perfect fulfillment of the law that enabled him to be an unblemished sacrifice for humanity at the cross, to bear the punishment of our sins and provide forgiveness for the repentant. We are now called and required to follow his example. And we become holy and enter into the life and the happiness of Jesus Christ by delighting in the law of the Lord meditating on it day and night. By doing so, we learn to walk by something and somebody called the Holy Spirit. So he says, a new law I'm giving you, it's the law of the spirit of life. Not the law of sin and death that you can never measure up to. Anybody ever read the Bible and said, I can't measure up? Tapped out? <laughs> Done. Well, good news, Jesus said, I've already fulfilled that law. Now I'm calling you to a different law, the law of the spirit of life that actually leads to the happiness that the world is looking for. And he talks about it in Galatians chapter 5. You're familiar with this scripture as well, where the apostle Paul was writing, and he says, but I say, walk by the spirit, meaning follow God. Walk in step with the Holy Spirit. He says, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh or the sinful nature, which we've already come to the conclusion that it leads to death, not happiness. <laughs> right? Family feud, right? <laughs> For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. So ultimately he's saying, listen, in your everyday experience, hear this now, you're going to have two tug of wars going on, right? One pulling you to the flesh, one pulling you to the Spirit, and you're going to have to decide which you're going to submit to. One leads to your happiness, one leads to your bitterness. Anybody ever find that to be true? One leads to your discontent. One leads to your freedom of thought and living so you can live generously within the world around you. One leads to your hoarding. One leads to, listen, I'm going to serve my community because Christ came not to be served but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. You see that? 
There's a tug of war in you, not just sometimes, but every day. So that you don't do what you want is what Paul said. So you're going to have to make a decision every day to what? Choose Jesus. And ultimately, in choosing Jesus, you're choosing your eternal joy and happiness. He says, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. But, let me make it clear for you, he says, the works of the flesh are evident. He's saying, ultimately, these things, though they have temporary pleasures attached to them in their nomenclature, they will not ultimately lead to your eternal happiness. He says, the acts of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, putting anything in it above or before God, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Things like these. Anybody ever, like, participate in any of those things before and found yourself wildly happy? <laughs> I love being, in the, you know, divisive with people. I just love it. I love dissensions. I just love factions. I just love jealousy. It just fills me with so much pleasure to be jealous of what everyone else has. Anybody ever been there? Right. No one has. Because those things lead to death. And Paul says, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who live do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is, the things that lead to the happiness people are looking for, is Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law, and in them is your happiness. If you're loving people, how about that? You don't have time to be bitter with them. If you're praying for people, how about you this? God will change your heart towards them no matter what you think they've done to you. If I love if I'm patient, which means long-suffering, you mean I could be happy in long-suffering? You better believe it. Why? Because I know that there's a reward on the other side of that long-suffering. I'm not doing it for nothing. There is an eternal reward for those who are waiting on the reward of Christ. And pursuing the leading and submitting to the daily direction of the Holy Spirit allows us to lead a holy life. But again... What part of my life? Is it just when I come to church? Is it just when I go to community group? Is it just when I pray over my food? G.K. Testerton again said it this way. You say grace before meals? All right. But I say grace before the concert and the opera. And grace before the play and the pantomime. And grace before I open a book. And grace before sketching, painting, swimming, fencing, boxing, walking, playing, dancing. And grace before I dip the pen in the ink. He says, in all of those things, I want God involved. In all of those things, I want to be set apart to God and allow God to bless that which I'm putting my hand to. And how many people would agree with G.K. Chesterton that that's a better state to live in? God, be a part of all that I do, set apart to you. Amen? Okay, come on. We're in church now. Amen? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. So, in the, or, in the anchor of the word of God, in the direction of the Holy Spirit, 
that plants our roots by the streams of living water, we find our happiness. But the question is, what are you feeding yourself in the meantime? Has anybody ever, <laughs> has anybody ever tried to reach a health goal, an athletic goal, but at the same time didn't watch your intake? You know what I'm talking about. You talk about going to the gym. Yes, I'm speaking for myself. My wife's looking at me now. I'm speaking for myself. But the thing is, it's like, she's like, you can go to the gym all you want, Ron, but until you put crumble aside, which is a cookie branch, <laughs> until you put crumble aside, you're not going to reach those goals. And often we look like this, a weight in one hand and a cheeseburger in the other. Do you know what I'm talking about? Has anybody ever before? Listen, I used to love going to the all-you-can-eat buffets and drinking a Diet Coke. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? And that's how the world lives, right? That's how the church lives. I'm going to call myself holy. I'll devo have my devotionals. I'll have my quiet time. I'll have all, I'll play some worship music in the background, but I will still feed on all the things that are contaminating my body and spirit and wondering why I'm struggling to live a holy life in the world that I live in today. You see, you're, you might be doing some good things, but if you're weighing yourself down with the ungodly things, then what's going to happen? You're going to either remain in the same place or ultimately go backwards. And he's saying happiness is found in the latter. And ultimately what we need to do, according to Romans 13, is he says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the, for the flesh to gratify its desires. Let's throw up these other pictures. You need to look like this every day, going into the world. Okay, moving past. You need to look like this. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> you need to look like this. Getting ready. Next picture. Like this. Next picture. Like this. Next picture. Come on, ladies. Like this. Like this. Like this. You need to look in that mirror and be clothing yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. Every day saying my happiness is found in clothing myself with him, giving no room, no room for the desires of the flesh because I know where he is. There's my liberty and my joy. And to remain rooted in Christ means to remain focused on the hope of eternal life and the happiness that springs from it. That's why Jesus ultimately in John chapter 14 said this. Listen, I'm giving you an eternal hope for what you can look to what you can look. He said, let not your hearts be troubled, right? Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. And if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you also may be. And you know the place to where I'm going. But Thomas said to him, well, how, Lord, how do we know? Where is that, Lord? Where are we going? Where are you going, Lord? Jesus said to him, I am the way, 
I am the truth, and I am the life, and nobody comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. If you want to be blessed, know him, if that's eternal life, and then follow him accordingly. It's very simple, right? Even children can do it. Know him and follow him accordingly. Know his commands, put them into practice. He said, there is a happy life. And this ultimately that Jesus was giving was matrimonial language. Got some people getting ready to get married, and it's a good thing. It's a good thing. <laughs> okay, But this was matrimonial language that Jesus was using, saying, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I'm coming back so that you might be with me where I am. Isn't that good news? He's inviting us into his eternal bliss. And though the wicked will not stand according to Psalm 1 in the judgment, God's promise is that the faithful will enter into their master's eternal happiness. Into their eternal happiness. Matthew 25. Read it later. It talks about it. Last quote and then we're done. John Lennox ultimately gives us this encouragement. He says, this world is not going to be trampled and smashed by brutal, amoral regimes forever. A day will come when God will bring to an end the state war machines, the terrorist bombs, the consummate evil and totalitarian oppression, the gas chambers, death camps, killing fields, and countless other infamous instruments of death. There will be a judgment. And God says ultimately he's inviting the world into life if they would turn from sin and turn to his ultimate way. And though turning away from, through turning away from our rebellion and putting our trust in the finished work for Christ, of Christ for us at the cross, not only do we have access to the forgiveness of our sins, but the blessings of God's eternal bliss. And that's the good news of the gospel. And no matter what you've experienced in your life or what you've read in your history books, that is the promise of God and the hope that's coming and where we should anchor all of our hopes, all of our dreams, and ultimately find our happiness. Because it's one that can't be shaken, stolen, or anything else. It can only be given away if we choose it. But God wants us to maintain it. He's fought for you. He's won. And now live in that victory in him. In Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. All right, let's bow our heads. Father, we thank you. We thank you, God. Thank you, God, God, that you've given us not only your word, but, God, you've given us the hope of life eternal in you. And, God, we know that ultimately, though this world is fleeting and passing away, your word is not. And, God, ultimately, you give us the ability to find our eternal joy in you. God, we pray that you would help us to be free to reorient our lives reorient our expectations reorient our hopes that where we place it it is in things that are not perishing but are imperishable God we pray that you would liberate us from the cacophony of distractions all the other noise around us that tells us that you will only be happy if you do these things you will only be happy if you have these things God, help us to see that if we have you, we have all that we'll ever need. God, liberate our souls today and help us to find an eternal, unshakable joy in you. 
And I want to pray for anyone who basically says, you know what, I've wanted this happiness and I've wanted this joy, but the way I've been living is in contradiction to God and God's ways. I've been living according to the flesh. I've been living in sin. And according to the word, I know that not only will I not have his happiness, I, don't, I won't enter the kingdom of God if I do so. And though I've been living that way, I want to come clean before God today and actually admit my fault and turn away from those sins today and put my trust in Jesus and his finished work for me on the cross. If that's you and you say, Jesus, I need to turn to you as Lord today that I might enter into your eternal joy, your eternal happiness, your forgiveness, and your hope. I want you to raise your hand. I want to pray for you. Is there anyone in here? Okay, good. Anyone else? Okay, good. Anyone else? Okay. Both sides of the room. People responding. Anyone else? Well, if that's you, please pray this with me today. Almighty God, I admit to you today that I've been a sinner. And I've chosen a way other than your way. I know that I deserve death and hell, but I don't want it. And I thank you today for loving me. Father, thank you for sending your son Jesus to live the perfect life that I should have lived. And on the cross, die the sacrificial death that I should have died. Thank you because he was innocent that three days later you raised him from the dead and gave me the hope of eternal life. Would you not only forgive me, but make me new. Make me make a home in me and show me how to love you and walk in your eternal joy for the rest of my days. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, if you prayed that prayer after our service, there'll be people over there to not only talk with you, but to pray with you, helping you to walk out the next steps in Christ. Please do so and don't leave without it. But other than that, let's rise to our feet and glorify God who offers us the hope of not only eternal life, but eternal joy of him in Jesus' name. Amen.